long last, we are done with the thieves. <laughs> Could we have been here so long? We are in the seventh of the evil pouches of the Malabolja that make up fraud. I'm Mark Scarborough. This is Walking with Dante. We're walking across Inferno, and we have seen three unbelievable metamorphoses, a blasphemous resurrection, a blasphemous incarnation, and a blasphemous creation. Those three events have happened over long passages in comedy, and our pilgrim has got one last bit to do. In this episode of our podcast, Walking with Dante, we're going to go over a canto break from the end of Canto 25 at line 142 and over on into Inferno's Canto 26 down to line 12, because this is really the full conclusion of the segments with the thieves. You'll notice that those Canto breaks are becoming less and less important. They were very important at the beginning of Inferno, and they seem to be becoming less important or they seem to be changing in a fundamental way. And we'll talk about that more when we get through the passage. So let's go. Let's have it. We are at Inferno Canto 25, line 142, all the way through Canto 26, line 12. In this way, I saw the seventh loaded shipment mutate and transform. The sheer novelty of it all lets me excuse my quill if it strays a bit out of bounds. And although my eyes were confounded and my soul was distraught, these sinners could not slip away quietly enough that I didn't clearly recognize Puccio Shinkato who was the only one of the three companions who remained unchanged after they'd first arrived on the scene. The other was the one whom you, Gavile, still lament. Take pride, Florence, that you've gotten so grandiose that you beat your wings over sea and land. Your name even spreads out across hell. Among the thieves, I found five who were your citizens, a fact that brings me much shame. It certainly doesn't raise you to the heights of honor. But if those dreams we have near dawn are true, you'll feel in only a little more time the very things that Prato and others crave for you to feel. If it all had already happened, it wouldn't have been too soon. And would that it had happened, because it must happen. Even so, it will weigh me down more and more the longer I live. There's the passage, all the way out to the end of The Thieves, with the denunciation of Florence as the final salvo in this seventh pit of hell. We have lots of things to talk about here. We want to talk about the thieves themselves and their identities, since finally we get something of a name, Puccio Shincato. We'll talk about why that's only something of a name in a minute. And then we want to talk more and more about what is exactly going on here and why does this entire pouch end with a denunciation of Florence. So let's get to it. The passage starts out, in this way, I saw the seventh loaded shipment. That's how I translated it. The word makes reference to the cargo hold of a ship. So the idea here is that these evil pouches are cargo holds, and this is 
loaded pouch, <laughs> loaded cargo hold of a ship in this seventh of the Malabolja of the evil pouches. And so I saw the seventh loaded shipment mutate and transform. I should tell you that a lot of critics make a big deal about the difference in those two verbs, mutate and transform, in the original Florentine. It's a little bit above my pay grade, and some of it seems like sheer speculation to me. It's not that I think Dante is using words loosely. It's that all of the ways in which critics differentiate between mutate and transform all seem, shall we say, rather creative. So the passage goes on, the sheer novelty of it all lets me excuse my quill if it strays out of bounds, and although my eyes were confounded and my soul was distraught. So we seem to kind of be in a weird place here where the poet is talking about what the pilgrim felt. We're feeling a little bit of a fusion between the poet and the pilgrim. You might want to think about that in terms of the metamorphoses in this passage. We seem to be kind of in and out of the poet and the pilgrim's point of view. He says, these sinners could not slip away quietly enough that I didn't clearly recognize Puccio Sciancato. Puccio Sciancato is probably a nickname. Sciancato means lame or, or this is going to be very un-PC, sorry, but as if you'd said Puccio the cripple. Lame legs, lame thighs. His actual name is Puccio Galagai. Um, again, this is a nickname. It's uh, a, a little derogatory, especially in a medieval context, to call someone lame or crippled. It is a bit of a derogatory backhandedness. Most of the commentators identify this person as Puccio Galagai, but we want to talk about why that is. And then it goes out. He's the one that remained unchanged. So he's not the guy that got fused with the lizard and not the guy who switched places with the lizard or the serpents, as Dante calls them. But still, nonetheless, he's the one who remains intact. And then the other one, the one who was a lizard and ends up being a man again after that strange metamorphosis, he says, is the one who you, Gavile, the town, Gavile, still lament. Most of the commentators connect this with Francesco de Cavalcanti. So let's go back over these thieves for a moment and think about their identities. Way back in Canto 24, way back there, we had Vanni Fucci, and we found out that he stole from the church treasury, stole church items. So Vanni Fucci was our first thief. And then there were five Florentines. Remember, they come along in the pit, they're talking. But nonetheless, they're not making a huge racket because Dante hushes Virgil up so that they can hear what these thieves are saying to each other. And they say, where is Chanfa? And again, I've talked to you about this before, but I don't think you can fully answer that question, where is Chanfa? It appears that Chanfa is the one who darts out as a reptile and bites Agnello and fuses with him, yet at the same time, you can't fully prove it in scientific method, in hard logic from the passage. The poet and pilgrim do say, I saw five Florentines here in this pit. So the pilgrim and poet 
seem to indicate that Chanfa must be a Florentine or the guy who was the reptile must be a Florentine, but it's still impossible to say that's Chanfa. You can't put your full weight on it. You can make a supposition and that might be important to the passage itself. So let's go through it. Where's Chanfa? Maybe he's that reptile that darts out and fuses with Agnello. So that's Chanfa Donati. Agnello is identified by the commentators as Agnello or sometimes Agnolo de Brunelleschi. Then we have Buoso di Fresse Donati. That's that Buoso who gets turned into a snake. Then we have this guy who Gavile laments for, Francesco. De Cavalcante, and then we have a named character, Puccio the Cripple. Ugh, that's so on PC. Puccio Galagai, who is the only one that is given at least as much of a name as Vani Fucci. That's still hard to pin them down. What is going on here? Let me offer you four interpretations, four uh, answers to the question of why is Dante a bit cagey about their identities? So four different rationales, and you can pick and choose amongst them. In the common commentator identification of these people, two of them are Donatis. It's important to remember that Dante's wife was a Donati, Gemma Donati. It could be that Dante is being cagey here to save his wife's family some embarrassment. After all, he and he did marry into the Donati family. Now, listen, I know we always think about Dante and Beatrice and Dante's great love of Beatrice, yada, yada, of course. But nonetheless, his wife was a Donati, and that's who he had his children with, is a Donati. So maybe part of the caginess here is saving the Donatis in some way if the commentator's identification is correct. But I would still say to you, just saying Buoso, and just saying you're the one who Gavile laments, and just saying Chianfa, and just saying Agnello, isn't giving us very much to go on. Puccio, a little more to go on, and perhaps... That's a little firmer identification. But in the end, there have to be a lot of Florentines named <laughs> named Agnolo. It can't just be one guy. And while the commentaries are very certain about, oh, what Agnolo de Brunelleschi did, it's still slippery in the text. So here's my second interpretation of why are these five thieves so slippery? Maybe the poet is stealing their identities. I mean, this is the pit of theft. And there is a way in which the poet is not granting them their full personhood. You could take that as a commentary on fraud. That fraud robs you of your humanity. And we've already seen that happening in the pit of fraud. And we could say that's happening here again. And in fact, even more pressingly, not just robbing you of your humanity, but there may be a way that fraud smudges your identity. It's not gonna play out quite that way in the cantos ahead in which the figures are going to be very 
definitely identified, but perhaps we could draw that sub-conclusion here that, let's say, one of the ways that fraud messes you up is it smudges your identity, the very nature of yourself, and here, particularly in the pit of the thieves, part of their selves, their own selves, parts of them are stolen by the poet. And so we have a slippery identification. Or here's a third possible answer. Is this class-based? And this is an answer that, that I don't see anywhere in commentary. So this is totally my own strategizing and thinking, why are the identities here so slippery? These fellows, if we accept the common definitions of who they are, Gianfa Donati and Pucci Galigai and Francesco de Cavalcanti, none of them is very, uh, shall we say, up class. None of them is very upscale in terms of Florentine nobility. And there could be a class-based problem going on here because it seems as if the figures who have great nobility, great background to them, whether it be Ferranata dei Uberti or whether it be other figures just ahead of us in this Canto 26 and then in Canto 27, they are very noble figures and they are given their full identities. We could be running into a little bit of medieval classism here. It's possible. I've never seen that in commentary and I wouldn't stake any... <laughs> money on my interpretation there. But it's still, it's part of perhaps why Dante doesn't really care exactly to, na to nail them down in terms of their identities. Or here's a fourth rationale. Is the poet intentionally leaving us in a muddle? Is that part of the poetic strategy here. You know that there is a great drive in commentary to identify all of the figures in comedy, and there are a lot of fair enough and true identifications going all the way back up to Homer, Ovid, Luke, and Horace in Limbo, going to Francesca, going to Ferranata, going to Brunetto Latini. There's a lot of honest God identifications of who people are throughout comedy. But there is a call at least once with Chaco, the glutton, for a smudged identity or an identity that is not fully discernible. Remember all those episodes ago, the question of exactly who Chaco is. And there's a lot of making up of the story of Chaco the glutton in commentary, just as there is a lot of making up the stories of these thieves. Listen, I don't know that somebody who lived 300 years after Dante knew that one of these thieves liked to rustle cattle. That seems like a long time to remember a detail. Even in an oral culture, it seems like a long time. And it seems like the commentariat is extraordinarily interested in nailing them down. But what if it's the poet's intention to leave these five guys in a bit of a muddle, in a bit of a confusion, and to leave 
us in a confusion? And what if that confusion is based on what comes next, the denunciation of Florence? What if their identities are smudged a bit or a bit indecipherable because of the chaos that Florence is descending into? That is, their identity crisis mirrors the way that Florence is on the verge of collapse or their identity that is being slowly chipped away or chipped away fully inside these passages and we can't fully identify them is exactly the position that Florence is going to get itself into until finally if Florence isn't careful there's not going to be any more Florence. I mean, it was saved once by Ferranata, but will it be saved again? That's a grand question of why this comes out to a prophecy. But buried inside naming these, and at the moment when we get the closest we get to actually naming one of them, Puccio the Cripple, that's when Dante slips in a slight confession. The passage says, the sheer novelty of it all lets me excuse my quill if it strays a bit out of bounds. There's that little confession stuck in there. And remember, I told you that many commentators see this whole pit as a moment in which Dante the poet gets out of control. Those commentators who say that come to this line. The sheer novelty of it all lets me excuse my quill if it strays a bit out of bounds. And we've talked about, endlessly talked about, the ways in which Dante gets himself into theological, ontological, epistemological, and literary trouble in this pit. That can either be he is taunting us with all kinds of puzzles, or if you are on the other side of the commentariat from me, you're going to say that Dante is a little out of control here. He's kind of wanting so badly to outdo Ovid and Lucan that he is actually even recognizing the fact that he's gone too far. Or, hmm, or is that recognition of the fact that he's gone too far what separates him from fraudsters? Is this a way out of seeing comedy as just one big fraud? To say, hey, you know, sometimes I get carried away. Saying that then excuses, in some ways, the fraudulence of the passages themselves. All things to think about when you try to put together an interpretation of this passage, which then jumps over the canto and comes out to this giant denunciation of Florence. Take pride, Florence, that you've gotten so grandiose that you beat your wings over sea and land. I mean, this idea that Florence has kind of controlling central Italy from land to sea across the mass. Your name even spreads out across hell. Among the thieves, I found five who were your citizens. A fact that brings me much shame. It certainly doesn't raise you to the heights of honor. The metamorphosis, the final metamorphosis here, is the metamorphosis of the pilgrim into the poet prophet. And that's one word, poet prophet. Well, I mean, of course, it's two words in English, but really 
if you want to take it in the Dantean sense, you take poet prophet as one word, as one thing, just as Jeremiah is, just as Isaiah is, just as Daniel is, just as Ezekiel is, just as all those Old Testament prophets, the prophets from the early parts of the Bible, are themselves poets, and most of what they write is in poetry. So this poet-prophet idea is very important, and here you'll notice that the poet-prophet finally embraces his role fully to predict the bad things that will happen to Florence. And we want to talk about this just for a minute because it's couched as a dream. The passage goes on, if those dreams we have near dawn are true, you know those kind of dreams, those dreams you have right before you wake up, which are so vivid and so real. Sometimes they even involve tactile sensations or auditory sensations. Those dreams we have near dawn are so true. And of course, in the old prophetic traditions, these are the dreams in which God most pressingly speaks to you because you're in the closest to a liminal state, a state between sleeping and waking. So you're in that liminal doorway, that place where the shaman wants to get to in older types of rituals, that shamanistic spot between two worlds where you can communicate back and forth between them. That's those kind of dreams. I'm not saying that Dante here says he's a shaman, but it is out of that tradition that this idea comes that those dreams are especially prescient or especially telling. If those dreams we have near dawn are true, you'll feel, Florence, in only a little more time, the very things that Prato and others crave for you to feel. This is a little bit confusing and a little bit difficult to understand because of the reference to Prato. Is Dante making a reference to the rebellion in the town of Prato in 1309 when the town of Prato cast out its black Gelfs and the white Gelfs were restored to power? If that's what Dante's making a reference to, it is an event, 1309, that is very close to the writing of Inferno. And what the poet is essentially saying is there's going to come a moment in which the black elves, which have thrown out my party, the white elves, the black elves are going to come to trouble too, even in Florence. Maybe. There's a second interpretation of this passage, and it wasn't advanced until 1732 by Pompeo Venturi. Pompeo Venturi, in his criticism of, well, criticism, commentary, let's say, his commentary on comedy says that this is a reference to Cardinal Niccolo da Prato. Cardinal Niccolo da Prato came to Florence in 1304 to try to negotiate a peace between the blacks and the whites and even other smaller factions and to bring some kind of peace to Florence. He was unable to do it. He left Florence in disgust and on his way out, essentially on his way out the door, excommunicated the entire citizenry of Florence. So if this is a reference to Niccolo da Prato, then, you know, what the others crave for you is this excommunication. And there's Florence, you're eventually going to fall down to hell. You're going to end up down here in the bottom pits because this is what others 
as in this excommunicative act. This is what others want for you. Most commentators see this as a reference to the rebellion in the town of Prato in 1309. The reason that's a little troubling is because that would make you have to say that, well, this doesn't really come true. There's never a moment in Florence when the Black Elves are necessarily thrown out. There's a moment in which they're all brought to a gigantic conflagration in the 1300s, and it's not not just that the black elves happen to get thrown out. So it puts you in the uncomfortable position of saying that Dante's wrong. I'm not opposed to that position, but it it does put you kind of close to that. The people tend to like now the Nicola da Prato answer because it saves them from that problem and it seems to indicate that, you know, hey, that other people are already noticing that you can't come to any peaceful terms, Florence, and so you're about to feel the wrath that's about to fall on you. And then we get the assurance from the poet. If it had all already happened, the passage finishes, it wouldn't have been too soon. And would that it had happened, because it must happen. This is all very torqued around what is going on and could happen and would happen and will happen and must happen. It's a phenomenological problem right here in terms of what's happening. And the claim seems to be being made that this has to happen, so it might as well happen soon. But at the end of it, there's that line, even so it will weigh down on me more and more the longer I live. This is the great difference for me in this passage. Dante, the poet prophet, for the first time expresses deep sorrow for what's about to happen, that this is a very sad thing. There are previous moments in Inferno in which the prophet poet seems almost gleeful at the destruction of Florence or the coming chaos. Here, it feels to me as if we have turned toward something more heartfelt. Now, I should tell you that that is a minority interpretation of this line. Most Dantistas see this as um, it's going to weigh more and more on me the longer I live. That is the, the desire for the black gelfs to get their comeuppance. I see it as a moment of lamenting sorrow, a Jeremiah moment in which the poet actually laments the coming chaos. And I see it that way because I see this as a further development of the poet-prophet as the pilgrim is turning into him. The pilgrim must learn to feel the sorrow of the coming judgment as well as the truth of the coming judgment. The Pilgrim has already done this once. The Pilgrim was globally apocalyptic in Canto 19. Remember with the popes upside down with the Simoniacs in their holes? And remember the Pilgrim launches into an attack on the papacy and then blows out into a giant apocalyptic hellscape in which the world comes to its final conclusion with 
beasts and whores and false prophets and the whole book of Revelation thing. It's not quite that dramatic, but still the whole book of Revelation of the Apocalypse of St. John from the New Testament and the pilgrim voices all that in Canto 19. But again, there there's no sorrow. He seems to enjoy bringing sorrow to Pope Nicholas in the hole. That seems to be what he enjoys doing, making those feet kick even harder. Here, it strikes me that out of all of this, the final metamorphosis is sadness. It To me, it's very moving. In all of these epistemological games, all of these phenomenological games, all of these games of identity and naming, all these literary games of Ovid and Lucan, in all of this stuff, it comes down to a moment in which I learn to feel as the poet pilgrim the sorrow of the judgment ahead. And that is the final metamorphosis. There's one more point in this passage, and I just want to make it before we end this episode of the podcast. And that is to go back to that opening line. In this way, I saw the seventh loaded shipment or the seventh full cargo hold mutate and transform. And I told you that was kind of the way the Florentine reads. And then there's this bit about Florence, you beat your wings over sea and land, this giant expanse. And we have this idea of flight and flight of over sea and land and a giant overreach of wings. I mean, Florence cannot control everything from sea to sea across central Italy, even if it wants to. So it's a kind of giant overreach in a soaring flight. (laughs) This is all setting us up. This The cargo of a ship, the soaring flight from sea and land, all of this is setting us up for what's just ahead of us, The one of the greatest sinners of all of hell. This whole reference to ships and flights and all of this stuff, ah, uh, I see Ulysses just ahead of us. And to get to Ulysses, you're going to have to subscribe to this podcast. You're going to have to rate it. That'd be great. You don't have to, but man, would that be a fine thing. This has been a complicated and difficult Malabolja, this long stretch with the thieves. We're going to have one more episode on them in which we're going to look at the entire sequence in the Seventh of the Evil Pouches. It's just important for us to stop and catch the sweep of the plot. So we're going to have one more episode on this pit, and then we're going to move ahead toward Ulysses, who's standing right in front of us with his loaded ships and his mad flights and across land and sea and all of that stuff so come back i can't wait to get to ulysses but once more on the thieves and we're still slow walking i'm mark scarborough see you soon